text for this morning's sermon is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. If you're using a Bible from the pew rack in front of you, that text can be found on page 1,392. Page 1,392. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 17. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Last week we took this text and we posed the first question, Namely, why do the saints minister to the body? Today we'll pose a second question, but first I want to go back and rehearse with you the answer to the first one and take it a little further and then begin the second one this morning and finish it tonight. The answer to the question why, that is to what end, to what goal, for what purpose are we as a body to minister to one another came in three levels. Level number one from verse 12. These leaders are given to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or ministry to, unto, here's the goal, the building up of the body of Christ. So answer number one to the question, why do we do it, is in order to build the body. Build. Building the body. Not just the individuals, but the body is built up. Now, answer number two comes from verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So answer number two was we minister to one another in order to bring the body into a unified faith and a unified knowledge or vision of truth of the Son of God. Answer number three is also in verse 13. If you keep reading. Until we attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a mature man. Now, that's not referring to any one of us members. That's referring, I believe, to Christ. Namely, the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the picture is this, in this third answer. Christ is a full, complete, perfect, mature head. And his body, you, the church, is not full and complete and mature and perfect. It's on the way, in process. And the purpose of ministry in the body is to bring that body into a fit body for that head. A great, perfect, beautiful, mature head ought to have that sort of of body. And so we are moving into a kind of corporateness that is befitting the head. The body ought to have a completeness, a maturity, a fullness about it. 
So we are moving into manhood, as it were, as a body, not just as individuals, but as a body. We move into Christ's fullness, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, that much we talked about last week. We jumped over verse 14. Verse 14 is so important that as I meditated on this text, thinking I would move right on to the how question after the why question, I just thought I've got to talk for a little while longer about the why, the goal of ministry. And then we'll talk a little bit about how this morning and then we'll finish it off tonight. Now, the fourth answer, therefore, to the why of ministry is given in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children. Tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, in this process where each member ministers with a view to building up the whole into a corporate personality like Jesus, in that process of ministering to one another, to the whole, Something happens to the individuals, namely, they stop being babes in their thinking. They stop being gullible. They stop being rocked up and down by the waves of culture and blown over by the winds of doctrine that blow from year to year across the American landscape. Now, that's a relevant verse, especially in a political year. Very relevant. Because the winds that blow in a political year are always more violent and more superficial than the winds that are always blowing. Now, I want to illustrate this. I want to unpack this for a few minutes because I think I'm one of these pastor teachers in verse 11. And I think my role is to equip you to do what I'm about to do. And you equip people by modeling. Okay, so I'm going to model how not to be a baby now for the next five or ten minutes in some of the winds that are blowing. Some of the words that you're hearing on the television and reading on the walls of Roosevelt High School or probably the other high schools. I don't visit those. First, an illustration from the political campaign. A way of manipulating religious language so that you tap into the American innate respect for the Bible without any reference whatsoever to its meaning or its substance. For example, in in January of, of this year, President Bush sacrificed the meaning of Matthew 5.14 on the altar of national pride as he was addressing the National Religious Broadcasters Association in defense of the Gulf War, Quote, I want to thank you for helping America as Christ ordained to be a light to the world. Now, that's a prostitution of Matthew 514. This verse does not mean that the light of the world in Matthew 514 is not the dropping of bombs on Iraq, no matter how justified that war was. This is a manipulation before a religiously sympathetic crowd of of religious language to win sympathy for the, the program without reference to the meaning of the language. That is dangerous. 
That's bad. We ought not to use that language that way. And we ought, to be, we ought not to be babies who, who hear it and say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible. This must be good. Governor Clinton would not be outdone six months later at the Democratic Convention. I remember hearing this one with my own ears in Chattanooga, Tennessee and coming straight out of my chair with indignation. We all know that he took the New Covenant concept and just manipulated it into the precious New Covenant concept, blood bought by the Son of God, turned into a political thing. And then, to cap it all off, with this quotation, quote, 1 Corinthians 2.9, quote, Scripture says, our eyes have not seen, nor our ears heard, nor our minds imagined what we can build. Now, that's not what that verse says. That is a glorious promise of what God prepared for those who love Him and could never do for themselves by any human effort whatsoever, it has become a sort of biblically sanctioned endorsement of human political effort. Now, that's rampant. This is rampant today. And it's not just candidates who ought to know better because they hold the limelight and function as models for millions upon millions of people. But it's rampant everywhere in the media, and here's just one example of how you ought not to be babes in the way you think, in the way you hear, letting people manipulate language that they know is heard sympathetically in order to slide in under it an agenda that has nothing to do with the meaning of that language. That's sheer manipulation. Babies fall for it. Mature people don't. Christ wills your maturity. He does not will you to be babies. He does not want you to be taken in by any kind of wind that blows in our society. Here's another kind of illustration from Roosevelt's walls. So I go down to Roosevelt to talk to all my son's teachers. and There over, over the doors we walk through are these pretty little posters with hearts on them endorsing homosexuality. Now, I'm sure that if the person who put those up there were to hear me say this, and for all I know, that person may be here, uh, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't endorse homosexuality. Maybe they wouldn't say that. I don't know. But let me read them and show you the kind of sly, underhanded way that I think our young people are being preached to day in and day out in the public schools for a certain moral agenda. The first one read, one in ten people are gay. Lesbian or bisexual. They could be your brother, sister, parent, or friend. Close quote. That's all it said. It's a poster. Now, the problem with that is, first of all, that the statistic is overblown. It's been discredited in all the things that I read. The National Center for Health Statistics estimates 3%, perhaps. William Simonson of the Kinsey Institute, where that first 10% figure came from in 1948, estimates 2 to 3%. Um, the University of Chicago study estimates perhaps 1%. So what the, what the poster does, first of all, is sow the, the thought into the minds of all the young people, every 10th person that passes you in the hall is probably dealing with homosexuality. The second thing it does is say, 
your parent might be a homosexual. Now, what's the point of that? True statement, right? It's a true statement. So what, how, how can you false a true statement? The problem with it is that it does not encourage our young people to deal with moral issues, careful moral reasoning based on durable standards. What it does, basically, is short-circuit that process and suggest that these young people simply deal with this issue on the basis of statistics and the feelings that emerge when you think about the possibility that your parent might be a homosexual. That's the end of the story. It's just closed. It just, it just sows the seed, does not encourage moral reasoning on the basis of standards, and moves on. You go through the door onto your class. It's lodged there. The other one is more subtle yet. The two posters right beside each other over the door. It said, quote, Respect sees no color, gender, sexual orientation, religion, or disability. What could be wrong with that? Respect sees no gender or sexual orientation. The two things that disturb me so deeply about that preaching, that preaching that's being done in the public school to my son every day and our kids, is first of all, that it puts sexual orientation in the same category with whether you're male or female or whether you're black or white. And then, of course, it's, it's okay. Because to act like a black person is a matter of indifference. To act like a white person is a matter of indifference. To act like a girl is a matter of indifference. To act like a boy is a matter of indifference. To act like a homosexual is a matter of indifference. And to act like a heterosexual is a matter of indifference. It's all, it's all one continuum. That's the message. They're all there in the categories. And so don't don't even think that there could be any moral issue in homosexuality that's different from being male or female. That's the message that's coming through. It's a wrong message. The other problem with that is even deeper. It says respect sees no color, gender, etc. Now, the result is that there's no positive foundation for respect. What is the basis of respect? It just tells you what respect doesn't see. What's the basis of respect? There's very little respect in the world today. And you will not build it by telling people what not to look at. There's no foundation to tell people not to see something doesn't tell them what to see. Here's what you have to see. Every human being, black, white, male, female, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever religion, and whatever disability is made in the image of God. Everybody in this room is created in the image of God and therefore shall be respected. Even murderers and rapists are created in the image of God. And the way you respect them is by holding them accountable and punishing them unlike you would a snake who killed a man. You just get the snake out of the way. You don't hold a snake accountable because he's not a man. In other words, there are different ways to respect people according to their behaviors. That's the first problem with that respect issue. That they don't provide any foundation for it positively. They just tell you not what to look at. And the other problem is you've got to look at those things. They do matter. Just take the issue of gender. It matters whether you're a woman or a man, how you get respected. I will teach my son until my dying day, you respect a woman differently from a man. For example, you don't walk into the girl's locker room. 
Period. She's a woman. And if you say, how do I know she's a woman? I say, open your eyes. You can tell a woman when you see her, but they have a poster that says, doesn't see gender. That's very important. You think that's silly? You think that doesn't matter in our culture? The unisex culture that says, respect sees no gender? We are destroying ourselves by telling ourselves that gender doesn't matter. The same thing goes right down the line. Each of Take religion, for example. You think religion doesn't matter in the way you respect somebody? Believe me, I'm going to have a lot more respect for an agnostic Jew who tries to keep the Ten Commandments than for a Satanist who practices satanic ritual abuse. That's his religion. Every Saturday night. Kills animals and sometimes babies. You think that doesn't matter? Whether a person's religion is one and not the other? And yet we're told, just respect sees nothing. That won't work. The kids know it won't work. I know it won't work. Why doesn't the person who's writing the posters know it won't work? You've got to have a foundation for respect. Namely, we're created in the image of God. And then you can't tell kids that just doesn't matter what anybody does or what anybody is. It matters. It matters. And the beauty of life is in discovering the wholesome, beautiful, God-intended ways that it should matter. Not by just kind of blanking it all out. Now, what's the point of this? Let me tell you what the point is not. The point is not to make life hard for homosexual people in this church. Dozens, perhaps. I know a lot of you. The point is not to make life hard for people who, for whatever reason, have this inclination that they don't want to have. Weep over. I do not stand against those people. I stand with those people in that struggle. Okay? Got it? We stand side by side and I regard the open confession. That's the way I feel. I don't know why fully. But I will not let that be my defining identity. I will not yield to the temptations to act out those feelings. I will stand beside you and we will work on that till we die and are perfected. Me and my heterosexual temptations, you and your homosexual temptations. The point of my harping on those two posters is not that. The point is this verse is relevant. This verse is relevant about the way the winds are blowing in our culture and language by politicians, by school administrators, on the television, is manipulated so that we can find incomplete sentences, half-truths, emotional appeals, religious click-ins, so that it doesn't go to the meaning, it doesn't go to the substance, it doesn't deal with the big moral issues, it just works, it just works, it gets votes, it gets approval, it changes minds. Don't be like that. Grow up. Grow up. Don't be babies. Think. Go beneath. And the question now, as we, as we move to today's message, <laughs> is how? How? What are we to do? I mean, you, you see what I'm doing. You say, oh, let's all be preachers. It won't work. It won't work. If all that happens is a sermon, it won't work. This text says that's not the answer. I'm an equipper. I have just done some equipping through modeling of what I believe is a non-baby-like way of reading posters and listening to speeches. 
Now what do you do? What do you do? What's your ministry? The answer is given in verse 15 and 16. We're only going to talk about verse 15 for a few minutes. And tonight I'm going to spend the whole time on verse 16 because it's got five practical things in it. And I've got uh, some ideas of practical ways of ministering to each other tonight. I, I hope you'll come to hear. Let's just talk about verse 15 for a minute. It says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now, there's the answer for how we minister to each other so that we grow up into Christ and in the process, stop becoming babes and become mature. And the answer is very simple. Speaking the truth in love, we grow. Speaking the truth in love, we grow. There it is. Truth and love, we grow together. Now, let me uh, remove a misunderstanding that I had for a long time by ignoring the context here. I used to read that phrase, speak the truth in love, as though it meant when I was a teacher over at Bethel, oh, shoot, he got a D and I got to tell him. That's the truth. So how can I do it in love? So you tell the truth, hard truth, in love. Or say you lose your job and your boss has got to lay you off. Hard truth. And the boss of Christians, so he says, now I've got to tell the truth in love. You can go right down the line. I used to take this text to mean uh, the hard facts of life have to be communicated, soften them, make them gentle by doing them in love. Now, that's true. That is true, true. Chapter 4, verse 25 says, don't lie to each other, but speak the truth about all kinds of things. That's not, however, the main point here. The word truth here, I think, in the context has to mean biblical truth. Truth about God, truth about His Son, truth about the Gospel, truth about the promises, truth about the future. Now, let me show you why, very briefly, I think that. Three reasons. Number one, in verse 11, the equippers who do this or help the people learn to do it, in verse 11, are truth agents. Look at them. Apostles who provide the authoritative foundation for the truth. Prophets who are the charismatic speakers of the truth, who apply it with supernatural pointedness. Uh, evangelists who, who take the truth to places and people that don't know it yet in the gospel. Pastors and teachers who take the truth and feed the people with the truth and protect the sheep with the truth. So my first reason is to say that the, the people that are equipping you to do the ministry to each other, which is speaking the truth in love, are truth agents, meaning agents of God's truth. Here's the second reason. Verse 13, the goal of all this is unified knowledge of the Son of God. So there again, you've got a pointer towards what kind of truth we're talking about. Namely, not just the hard facts of life. You made a D or you're losing your job or whatever. But rather, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus reigns. Jesus is coming. Jesus rules. Truth. That kind of truth. The third reason is in verse 14, where it says, Don't be blown over by every wind of doctrine. How do you avoid that? truth. You sink your roots down in truth. God's truth. So that when the wind blows, you mm, like that, but you don't fall over. So my conclusion is that the way you minister to each other, having been equipped a little bit this morning, for example, by Sunday school teachers and others, the way you minister is by filling your head with biblical truth and then talking it to each other. In love. Love and knowledge. Love and and knowledge, truth and love. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, love builds up. That means you cut off knowledge from love and you'll have a puffed up congregation. Or if you cut off love from knowledge, you have a sentimental congregation. 
They have all these good desires and they don't know what to do with them. They don't know whether it goes this way. Do you, well, what is love? You know, does love do this or does love do that? How do you help people? What is good? What is bad? What is helpful? What is harmful? I don't know. But I love. So you get nowhere. Philippians 1.9 says, May God cause your love to abound with knowledge and all discernment. Philippians 1.9. So you've got love abounding with knowledge and discernment there. And you've got truth spoken in love here. Let me, let me give you an illustration in closing. This has been a bad week for the Piper family. Uh, two car wrecks, both of them totaled our car. We had two totals. I can still drive it, but I can't open the doors. And uh, so it's doubly, doubly used. They don't pay you twice. But you just lose it twice. Then Noel had four speaking engagements. So one on Friday night, three on Saturday. So she was out of commission as far as the family goes. Two soccer tournaments. I've got to get the boys to two soccer tournaments here. Little, and, and two games in each tournament all over the place, you know. And I have a sermon to prepare. And uh, I can't remember what else. So, tough week. Now, Michael's, David and Sally picked up on this through just a word on Tuesday. And uh, Sally calls Noel and says, can we bring supper over on Friday? And... Uh, just heard you having a stressful week. Maybe it would help. Noel said, sure. I've never seen Noel turn anything like that down. <laughs> sure. And she brought it. And, and uh, that's happened before. And she brought this card. This is truth. Okay? This is truth. That was love. This is truth. And it was, the truth came in love. Came on a casserole. <laughs> and a salad and cornbread. Seek you the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. His name is faithful and true. I know that. I knew that already. But, and you, you know the truth. Okay? I'm not telling you teach one another things you don't know. That's not the point. I'm telling you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in a moment of need, in love, tell truth. That had power. This is a powerful piece of paper. It's a powerful piece of paper. This is more powerful than, than, than any piece of paper I've held in my hand for a long time outside the Bible. It moved me to tears. I was ready to cry at the drop of a hat. Anyway. <laughs> that's, what, that's part of what I mean. We're going to talk more about specifics tonight. Speaking... Biblical, gospel, glorious truth in love. So fold it into love and deliver it with your mouth or on a piece of paper or over the phone. Now, if we, a lot of people, a lot of you come to Bethlehem because you like the way we, we talk truth. A lot of people come to Bethlehem. They tell me, I like the truth that you emphasize. Fine, I hope we never lose it. I, I treasure it. But not as many people tell me, I really like the way you guys love each other. Now, I'd like to see that change, okay? And we've talked about this. We know this is what we're about in these series of messages. I would like to hear that said as often as, uh, you really stand up for the truth. That's great. I'd like to say, and wow, do you really deliver it to each other in love? I see it everywhere. I see it by the way you talk to each other. I see it in things like this. I can just tell. There's a corporate personality of Christ-like love here, all right? 
That's my goal. That's what I'd like us to pray about as we close. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I believe that uh, my brothers and sisters who are listening to me now want to say amen to the combination of truth and love. None of us wants to have a head without a heart or a heart without a head. None of us wants to be cold and articulate or warm uh, and foolish. We want, Lord, to have it together. We want to love and we want to be astute and not gullible. And so, Grant, I pray that you would do it. Lead us, please. Lead the leadership of the church. Lead me, shape me, guide me, that I might uh, equip as I ought and that the elders would equip the way they should and all the leaders and teachers of our, of our church would model speaking the truth in love in such a way that it would spread and that the corporate personality that grows up at Bethlehem would be the way Jesus put it together. In his name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.